The Gita was never intended for any specific individual, any specific caste, religion, path, place, time, or for any conventional culture. It is a universal and eternal spiritual treatise. It is enduringly and most relevant to every nation, every religion, every living being. Indeed, it is meant for everyone, everywhere. The Gita is a scripture that is meant for the entire human race for use as a spiritual textbook. It becomes, then, for each of us, a great honor and blessing that this Gita can serve as our own personal spiritual handbook. Matmane Namaha Yatart Gita Srimad Bhagavad Gita Chapter 3 Urging the Enemy's Destruction In Chapter 2, Krishna told Arjun that the knowledge he had discoursed upon was related to the way of knowledge. And what is that knowledge except that Arjun ought to fight? If he is a victor, he will be rewarded with the most exalted state, and even in defeat, he will have a godly existence in heaven. Krishna then explained the same knowledge in relation to the way of selfless action, by which Arjun could be completely free from the compulsions of action. He also indicated the characteristic features of the way and stressed the essential precautions that have to be observed in the course of such action. So he thought the way of knowledge easier and more readily accessible than the way of selfless action, and wished to know why Krishna was urging him to engage in such a dreadful act as killing his own kinsmen, although Krishna himself believed the way of knowledge to be superior to the way of selfless action. Arjun said, O oh, Janardhan, if you think knowledge superior to action, why do you, O Keshav, ask me to engage in fearsome action? Janardhan is one who is merciful to his people. So Arjun is hopeful that Krishna will enlighten him on why he is prompting him to adopt the dreadful way. Arjun finds the way frightening because on this way he has only the right to act, but without entitlement at any time to the rewards of his action. There should also be no loss of dedication, and with constant submission and his eyes fixed on the way, he has to be incessantly engaged in the task. Has not Krishna promised him that following the way of knowledge, 
he will in the case of victory attain to the Supreme Spirit, whereas even in the event of defeat he will be privileged to lead a godly life. Moreover, he has to proceed on the way only after a due evaluation of his assets and liabilities. So he finds knowledge easier than selfless action, and he begs of Krishna, Since your complex words are so confusing to my mind, Kindly tell me the one way by which I may attain to the state of blessedness. Krishna had, in fact, set out to dispel Arjun's irresolution, but his words have only added to his doubts. So Arjun requests Krishna to tell him unambiguously the one way by which he may achieve emancipation. Krishna then speaks to him, The Lord said, I told you before, O sinless Arjun, two ways of spiritual discipline, the way of discrimination or knowledge for sages and the way of selfless action for men of action. Before, here does not mean a bygone era or yug, like the golden or treta age. It rather refers to the last chapter in which Krishna had spoken of the two ways, recommending the way of knowledge for men of wisdom and the way of selfless action for those who are actively engaged in the task that will finally make them one with God. In both the ways, action has to be performed, so action is an essential. Man neither attains to the final state of actionlessness by desisting from work, nor does he achieve godlike perfection by just renunciation of work. There is no escape from action. Neither can a man achieve the state of actionlessness by not commencing work, nor can he attain to the state of divine perfection by merely giving up an undertaken task. So whether Arjun prefers the way of knowledge or the way of selfless action, he has to toil alike for each of them. Usually, at this point, seekers on the way to God begin to look for shortcuts and escapes. 
we have to be on our guard against the common misconception that we become selfless doers just because we do not undertake any work. That is why Krishna emphasizes the point that one does not achieve the state of actionlessness by just not beginning work. The point where both good and evil deeds cease completely, where alone there is true actionlessness, can be reached only through action. There are the misguided ones, on the other hand, who believe that they are unconcerned with action because they are men of intellect and discernment and because there is no action as such on their chosen path. But they who renounce action under such an impression are not really men of wisdom. Just renunciation of an undertaken task cannot lead anyone to the attainment of realizing and becoming one with God. Nahi kaschit kshanamapi Jatutishthatya karma krit Karyate yavashah karma Sarvah prakriti jair gunai Since all men have doubtlessly sprung from nature, no one can at any time live even for a moment without action. No man can ever, even for a fraction of a second, live without action because the three properties of matter born from nature compel him to act. As long as nature and its properties are, no man can be without action. Krishna says in the 33rd and 37th verses of chapter 4 that all actions cease to be and dissolve into the most exalted knowledge. The knowledge obtained from meditation on the sublime truths which teach man to be aware of his own self and how he may be reunited with the Supreme Spirit. The fire of this knowledge annihilates all action. What really the Yogeshwar means by this is that action ceases to be when yoga has gone beyond the three properties of the material world and when a clear outcome of the meditative process comes forth in the form of a direct perception of, as well as dissolution of, the self in God. But before this completion of the appointed task, action does not end and we are not rid of it. That deluded man is a dissembler who apparently restrains his senses by violence, but whose mind continues to be preoccupied with objects of their gratification. Such ignorant men who dwell upon sensual objects while restraining the senses outwardly by hatha yoga are false men and not the men of wisdom at all. It is evident that such practices were prevalent in the age of Krishna also. There were some who, instead of practicing what ought to be practiced, just restrained their senses by unnatural means and claimed that they were wise and perfect. 
But according to Krishna, such people are cunning liars. Whether our preference is the way of discrimination or the way of selfless action, work has to be undertaken for each of them. Yastvindriyani manasa Niyamyarabhaterjuna Karmendriyai karmayogam Asakta savishishyate And, O Arjuna, that man is meritorious who restrains his senses with his mind and employs his organs of action to do selfless work in a spirit of complete detachment. He is a superior man who exerts inner rather than external control over his senses, so that his mind is freed from passions, and who does his duty in a state of total desirelessness. Now, although we have known that work has to be done, the difficulty is that we do not yet understand the precise nature of this work. That is also Arjuna's problem, and Krishna now proceeds to resolve it. You ought to do your prescribed action as enjoined by Scripture, for doing work is better than not doing any, and in the absence of it, even the journey of your body may not be completed. Arjuna is prompted to do the prescribed or ordained action, the appointed task, which is distinct from all other kinds of work. Performance of this action is preferable to inaction, because if we do it and traverse even a small part of our way, it can rescue us from the great fear of birth and death. Performance of one's duty is therefore the better course. By not doing it, we cannot even complete the journey of our soul through different bodies. This journey is usually interpreted as sustenance of the physical body. But what kind of sustenance is this? Are we a physical body? This soul, the embodied self, that we know by the name of Purush, what else has he been doing except making his physical journey through endless lives? When clothes are worn out, we change them and put on new ones. Just so, this whole world, from the lowest creatures to the most highly evolved, from Brahma to its most distant limits, is mutable. Through births, low and high, this soul has been making his physical journey since an unknown beginning. Action is something that completes this journey. If there is yet to be another birth, the journey is still incomplete. The seeker is still on his way, 
traveling through bodies. A journey is complete only when the destination is reached. After being dissolved in God, the self does not have to travel any further through physical births. The chain of the self's rejection of old bodies and assumption of new ones is now broken. So action is something that frees the self, the purush, from the necessity of journeying through bodies. Krishna tells Arjuna in the 16th verse of chapter 4, By this action you shall be freed from the evil that binds the world. So action, as used in the Gita, is something that liberates from the bondage of the world. However, the question of what this ordained action is still remains unresolved. Krishna now begins to answer the question. Yajnyarthat karmano nyatra Lokoyam karma bandhana Tadartham karma kaunteya Mukta sangha since the conduct of yajna is the only action and all other business in which people are engaged are only forms of worldly bondage, O son of Kunti, be unattached and do your duty to God well. Contemplation of God is the only real action. That conduct is action, which enables the mind to concentrate on God. It is a prescribed act, and according to Krishna, tasks other than this are only forms of worldly bondage. Anything other than the performance of this yajna is a form of slavery rather than action. It is important to remind ourselves once more of Krishna's injunction to Arjuna that he shall be freed from the evils of the world only by doing the one real work. The accomplishment of this work, of yajna, is action. And Arjuna is urged to do it well in a spirit of detachment. It cannot be performed without disinterest in the world and its objects. So, the conduct of yajna is action. But another question now arises is what this worthwhile act of yajna is. Before we proceed, let us recall what Krishna has said of another aspect of action, that it is a prescribed or ordained conduct and that what is usually done in its name is not true action. The term action was first used in chapter 2. Its characteristic traits, as well as the precautions needed for it, were pointed out. But the nature of this action has remained unspecified. In chapter 3, Krishna has so far said that no one can live without action. Since man lives in nature, he must act. Nevertheless, there are people who restrain their sense organs by use of force, but whose minds are still occupied with objects of the senses. Such people are arrogant, and their efforts are vain. 
So Arjuna is told to restrain his senses, to perform the ordained action. But the question yet remains, what action should he perform? He is told that the accomplishment of yajna is action. But that is not really answering the question. True that yajna is action, but what is yajna? In the present chapter, Krishna only points out the origin and special features of yajna. And it is only in chapter 4 that he will elaborate the concept of the action which is fit to be done. A proper understanding of this definition of action is the key to our comprehension of the Gita. All men are engaged in some work or the other, but that is different from true action. Some of them do farming, while others are engaged in trade and commerce. Some hold positions of power, while others are just servants. Some profess that they are intellectuals, while others earn their living by manual labor. Some take up social service, while others serve the country. And for all these activities, people have also invented contexts of selfishness and selflessness. But according to Krishna, they simply are not what he means by action. Whatever other than yajna is done is only a form of worldly bondage, not true action. The performance of yajna is the only real action. But instead of explaining what yajna is, he now dwells upon its genesis. At the beginning of Kalp, the course of self-realization, Prajapati Brahma shaped Yajna along with mankind and enjoined on them to ascend by yajna, which could give them what their hearts aspired to. Prajapati Brahma, the god presiding over creation, made mankind along with yajna at the beginning, and told men to progress through yajna. This yajna, wholly propitious, was prescribed or ordained as the action which would satisfy their hunger for realization of the eternal God. Who was the creator of mankind along with Yajna? Was it Brahma? And who is he? Is he, as it is believed, the God with four heads and eight eyes? According to Krishna, there are no beings like gods. The sage who has realized and become one with the Supreme Spirit the fountainhead from which all mankind has arisen is Prajapati, the man of perfection who has become a transmitter of God's essence. Wisdom that results from knowledge of God is itself Brahma. At the moment of this realization, the mind becomes a mere instrument. It is God himself who then speaks through the voice of the sage. There is constant growth of wisdom after the commencement of spiritual adoration or worship. 
Since at the beginning this wisdom is endowed with knowledge of God, it is called Brahmvit. Gradually, as evil impulses are subdued and the knowledge of God is enriched, this wisdom is said to be Brahmvidwar. As it ascends yet higher and gets more refined, it comes to be known as Brahmvidwaryan. At this stage, the sage who is blessed with knowledge of God also achieves the capacity to bring others on to the way of spiritual growth. The highest point of wisdom is Brahmvidwarisht, that state of divine inundation in which the Spirit of God flows through it like a crystal current. Men who have attained to this state enter into and dwell in the Supreme Spirit from whom all mankind is born. The minds of such sages are mere instruments, and it is they who are called Prajapati. By dissociating themselves from the contradictions of nature, they create the self who is yet unaware of the process of meditation or God's worship. Conferring perfection, which is in accordance with the spirit of Yajna, is the creation of mankind. Prior to this, human society is unconscious and chaotic. Creation has no beginning. Sanskar has always been there. But before the sages conferred perfection on it, it was deformed and in a state of anarchy. To shape it in accordance with the requirements of Yajna is the act of refining and adorning. Some such accomplished sage or sages created Yajna along with creating mankind at the beginning of Kalp, the course of self-realization. The word Kalp, however, also means cure of sickness. Physicians effect such cures and there are some who even rejuvenate us, but their remedies are only for ephemeral bodies. The true cure is that which provides liberation from the general malady of the world. The beginning of worship or adoration is the commencement of this remedy. When meditation is complete, we are wholly cured. Thus, sages with their beings in the Supreme Spirit gave a proper shape to spiritual excellence in Yajna and instructed men that they would prosper through the observance of Yajna. By this prospering, they did not mean that clay houses would change into brick and plaster mansions. Neither did they promise that men would begin to make more money. They rather wished men to know that Yajna would fulfill their God-inclined aspirations. A logical question that confronts us here is whether Yajna leads to immediate attainment of God or only by gradual steps. Brahma further said to mankind, And may you cherish gods by Yajna, and may gods foster you, 
for this is the means by which you will finally achieve the ultimate state. Cherishing gods by yajna means fostering sacred impulses, and that is how gods foster mankind. Thus, by mutual augmentation, men will ultimately achieve that final bliss after which there is nothing more to achieve. The deeper we enter into yajna, later yajna will be explained as a way of worship, the more is the heart enriched with divinity. The Supreme Spirit is the only God, and the means, the impulses, that provide access to that God are the divine treasure, because they bring the ultimate God within reach. This, rather than the commonly imagined gods, such as a piece of stone or mass of water, is the true divine wealth. In Krishna's words, such gods have no existence. He further adds, The gods you foster by yajna will shower upon you without asking all the joys you wish for. But the man who avails himself of these joys without having paid for them is truly a thief. The divine riches we earn and store by yajna will give us nothing else besides joys related to the revered God. They are the only powers which give. There is no other way to attain to the adored God. The man who tries to enjoy this state without making an offering of divine riches, the righteous impulses, is doubtless a thief who is given nothing. And since he gets nothing, what is there for him to enjoy? But he pretends all the same that he is perfect, a knower of the essence. Such a braggart is shy of the path of righteousness, and so he is truly a thief, albeit an unsuccessful one. But what do those who attain gain? Yajya shishta shina santo Muchante sarva kilpishai Bunjate te tvagham papa the wise who partake of what is left over from yajna are rid of all evil. But the sinners who cook only for the sustenance of their bodies partake of nothing but sin. They who subsist on the food derived from yajna are absolved of all sins. The moment of achievement in the course of augmenting the divine plenty is also the moment of its completion. When yajna is complete, 
the leftover is God himself. The same has been said by Krishna in a different way. The one who feeds on what is generated by Yajna merges into the Supreme Spirit. The sage who feeds on God's manna that issues from Yajna is liberated from all sins, or, in other words, from birth and death. Sages eat for liberation, but a sinner eats for the sake of the body that is born through the medium of attachment. He feeds on evil. He may have sung hymns, known the way of worship, and also made a little bit of the way. But despite all this, there arises in him a cloying desire that he should achieve something for the body and its objects of attachment. And it is quite likely that he will also get what he desires. But then, after this so-called joy, he will find himself stationary at the very point from which he had begun his spiritual quest. What greater loss can there be than this? When the body itself is destructible, how long can its pleasures and joys be with us? So, irrespective of their divine adoration, such men partake only of sin. They are not destroyed, but they do not progress on the way. That is why Krishna stresses action, or worship, undertaken in a self-effacing spirit. He has so far said that the practice of yajna confers the highest glory and that it is a creation of accomplished sages. But why do such sages undertake the shaping and refinement of mankind? Annad bhavanti bhutani Parjanyadanna sambhavah Yajyad bhavati parjanyo Yajyah karma samudbhavah Karma brahmodbhavam vidhi Brahmakshara samudbhavam Tasmat sarvagatam brahma nityam yagye pratishtitam All beings get their life from food. Food grows from rain. Rain emerges from yajna. And yajna is an outcome of action. Be it known to you that action arose from the ved and the ved from the indestructible supreme spirit, so that the all-pervasive, imperishable God is ever-present in yajna. All creatures are born from food. Food is God himself whose breath is life. A man turns to yajna with his mind fixed on that divine manna. Food results from rain, not the rain that falls from clouds, but the shower of grace. The yajna, which have been undertaken and stored earlier, themselves come down as a shower of grace. Today's worship is given back to us as grace the next day. That is why yajna is said to generate rain.
If an indiscriminate oblation or offering to all of the so-called gods and burning of barley grains and oil seeds could produce rain, why should deserts have remained barren? Thus, rain here is the shower of grace that is an outcome of yajna. This yajna, again, arises from action and is indeed brought to completion by action. Arjun is told to remember that this action is born from the Ved. The Ved is the voice of sages who live in God. The vivid perception of the unmanifest essence, rather than cramming of certain verses, is named Ved. The Ved is born from the imperishable God. The truths of the Ved have been proclaimed by great souls, but since they have become one with God, the imperishable God himself speaks through them. It is for this that the Ved is said to be of divine origin. The Ved came from God, and the sages, being one with him, are only instruments. It is he whose spokesman they are. God manifests himself to them when they have restrained the desires of their mind by yajna. The omnipresent, ultimate, and imperishable God is therefore always present in yajna. So yajna is the only way to attain to him. This is what Krishna tells Arjuna. Evam pravartitam chakram nanuvartayati hayaha the man in this world, O Part, who loves sensual pleasure and leads an impious life, and does not conduct himself in accordance with the thus prescribed cycle of self-realization, leads but a futile life. The pleasure-loving, sinful man, who, despite his birth in human form, does not conduct himself in keeping with the means of the ordained action, or, to put it differently, does not follow the way of attaining to the state of immortality through fostering gods and so also himself, by tending the divine riches of his nature, lives but in vain. But there remains nothing more to do for the man who rejoices in his self, finds contentment in his self, and feels adequate in his self. The man who is utterly devoted to his embodied soul finds satisfaction in him and feels that he needs nothing more besides him, has nothing more left to do. After all, the self was the goal. Once the unmanifest, immortal, indestructible essence of the soul has been realized, there is nothing beyond to seek. A man such as this needs neither action nor worship. 
soul and God, self and the Supreme Spirit, are all synonymous. This is what Krishna demonstrates again. Such a man has neither anything to gain from action nor anything to lose from inaction, and he has no interest in any being or any object. Previously there was, but now there is, for such a man, neither any profit in doing, nor any loss in the absence of doing. He ceases to have any selfish relationship with any being. The self is constant, eternal, unmanifest, changeless, and indestructible. When once this soul has been known and one is joyous, contented, and absorbed in him, what else is there beyond to search for? And what shall we gain by any further seeking? For such a man, there is no harm in forsaking action, because he no longer has the mind on which impieties can make an impression. He is not the least concerned with beings of the external world or with any of the layer upon layer of inner aspirations. When he has grasped the very highest, what use has he for anything else? Tasmada Sakta Satatam Karyam Karma Samachara so always do what is right for you to do in the spirit of selflessness. For in doing his duty, the selfless man attains to God. In order to achieve this state, Arjun ought to be disinterested and do well what is fit for him to do. For a selfless man realizes God only through selfless action. The action which is worthy of doing is the same as the ordained action. So to inspire Arjun to ordained action, Krishna further adds, Since sages such as Janak had also attained to the ultimate realization by action, and keeping in mind as well the preservation of the God-made order, it is incumbent upon you to act. Janak here does not mean the king of Mithila. Janak is an epithet of father, the giver of life. Yog, the way by which the individual soul may be united with the Supreme Spirit and thus secure absolution, 
is Janak, for it brings out and manifests the embodied soul. All those who are endowed with yoga are sages like Janak. Many such great men possessing true wisdom have also achieved the final bliss through action aimed at the ultimate attainment. Ultimate stands for realization of the essence that the Supreme Spirit represents. All great saints, such as Janak, have attained to the state of ultimate realization through performance of the action which is Yajna. But after attainment, they act with the welfare of the world in view. They work for the betterment of mankind. So Arjun too is worthy of being a true leader of the people after attainment. Yadhyadacharati shreshtaha Tatta devetaro janaha Sayat pramanam kurute Others emulate the actions of a great man and closely follow the example set by him. The man who has known his self and who finds joy and contentment in his embodied soul has nothing to gain from action nor anything to lose from inaction. But on the other hand, there are instances of men of true attainment, such as Janak, and others who were assiduously engaged in action. In the following verse, Krishna also unobtrusively compares himself with those great men to suggest, I too am a great soul like them. Although, O Part, there is no task in all the three worlds which I have to do, and neither is there any worthwhile object which I have not achieved, I am yet engaged in action. Like other sages of attainment, Krishna has also nothing remaining to do. He said a little earlier that sages have no duty to perform to other beings. Similarly, in all the three worlds he has nothing to do and there is not even the least desirable object that he does not have. And yet he is earnestly engaged in action. Yadihaham navarteyam jatu karmanya tandritaha mamavartmanu vartante manushya partha sarvashaha. For should I not be diligent in the performance of my task, O part, other men will follow my example in every way. If he is not careful about the due performance of his assigned task, other men will also behave like him. 
Does it mean that even emulating Krishna, God, may be an error? By his own admission, he will set a bad example if he does not act. If I do not perform my action well, the whole world will perish, and I shall be the cause of Warren Sankar, and so a destroyer of mankind. If he does not acquit himself of his task with caution, not only will all the worlds stray, but he will also bring about Warren Sankar, and so the destruction of all mankind. If the accomplished sage is not cautiously engaged in meditation, society will be corrupted by imitating his example. There is no loss to the sage if he does not act, because he has realized the ultimate goal by successful completion of his act of worship. But that is not true of others who have perhaps not yet even set foot on the path of this spiritual exercise. So great souls labor for the edification and guidance of those who lag behind. Krishna is doing the same. The implication is clear that Krishna also was a sage, a true yogi. He works just as other sages work, for the good of the world. The mind is very unstable. It desires everything except worshipful meditation. If sages who have realized God do not act, by their example, people behind them will also give up action. Common people will have an excuse for license if they find that the saint does not meditate, indulges in minor vices, and participates in cheap gossip. Disillusioned, they will withdraw from worship and fall into impiety. That explains why Krishna says that if he does not do his appointed duty, all mankind will fall from grace, and he will be the cause of Warren Sankar. According to Arjun, there is a destructive intermingling of disparate classes when women grow unchaste. In chapter 1, he was troubled by the fear that there would be Warren Sankar if women lost their virtue. But Krishna refuted him and affirmed that there would be Warren Sankar only if he, Arjun, was not assiduously engaged in his appointed task. In fact, God himself is the true Warn, or quality, of self. Straying from the path that takes one to the eternal God is, therefore, the aberration called Warn Sankar. If the saint who has perceived God desists from performance of the worthy task. By following his example, others will also lose sight of their duties and become Warn Sankar, for conflicting properties of nature are then combined in them. It is in this sense that a sage is the cause of destruction of mankind if he does not induce others to act while he is himself earnestly engaged in his prescribed task. Realization of the indestructible God, the root from which everything is born, is life. 
whereas to be engrossed in the innumerable objects of nature and stray from the divine path is death. So that sage who does not induce other men to walk along the path of action is a destroyer, verily a murderer of humanity. He is a destroyer of mankind if he does not check the frittering away of minds and senses and compel other men to keep to the right path. He is then an embodiment of violence. True nonviolence is cultivating one's own self and simultaneously also urging others to spiritual discipline and growth. According to the Gita, physical death is only a change of perishable bodies, and there is no violence in this. So Krishna tells Arjuna, As the ignorant act with a feeling of attachment to their actions, even so, O Bharat, the wise ought to act for the preservation of the divinely established world order. A wise man, selfless and endowed with spiritual knowledge, acts in order to inspire the hearts of other men to act for their own good, just like any selfish and ignorant man. We may be ignorant even though we know the way of and practice yajna. Knowledge is direct perception. So long as we are even in the least removed from God, and He, the desired one, from us, ignorance is present. When this darkness prevails, there is attachment to action and its consequences. The selfless meditate with a devotion which is very much similar to the attachment with which the ignorant do their work. There can be no attachment in men who are unconcerned with doing, but even these sages ought to act for the good of the world and for the strengthening of forces of piety so that other men take to the right path. Na buddhi bhedam janayed Agyanam karma sanginam Joshayet sarva karmani Vidvan yuktah samacharan Rather than confusing and undermining the faith of the ignorant who are attached to action, the wise man should prompt them to dwell in God and act well as he himself does. Instead of creating confusions in the minds of the ignorant who are engaged in the performance of the said action, seers who have directly perceived God should be careful that no act of theirs should cause a weakening of other men's dedication. It is the duty of the sage who is blessed with sublime knowledge to inspire others to perform the prescribed action in which he himself is so earnestly engaged. 
This is why, even in extreme old age, my revered teacher used to wake up at two in the morning and cough to warn others that he was awake. And then he would begin to call loudly, Get up, you earthly men! When all of us had risen and sat down to meditate, he would himself lie down for a while. Then he would get up again and say, Do you think I was sleeping? I have really been concentrating on my breath. I lie down because my body is old and sitting is painful for me. But you young men have to sit firm and straight and contemplate until your breathing is like the continuous smooth flow of a stream of oil, with no break in its current and no external thought to disturb your concentration. It is the worshiper's duty to be incessantly occupied with the task of meditation until then. As for my breath, it is steady and straight like a bamboo shoot. This is why the sage has to act well himself, for without that he cannot induce his disciples to do the same. A teacher should teach by example rather than precept. Krishna now deals with who the doer of action is and what the motives of action are. Prakrite kriyamanani gunaihi karmani sarvashaha ahankara vimudhatma Although all action is caused by the properties of nature, the man with an egotistic and deluded mind presumes that he himself is the doer. From the beginning to the moment of attainment, all action is performed because of the properties of nature. But the man whose mind is clouded with vanity thinks arrogantly that he is the doer. He takes it for granted. But how can we believe that worship of God also is brought about by the properties of nature? The necessary evidence is provided by Krishna. But the wise man, who is aware of different spheres of the properties of nature, in the form of mind and senses, as well as of their action upon objects, is not a prey to attachment, O oh, the mighty-armed! because he knows that the mind and senses, gun, dwell upon objects of perception, gun. Seers who have perceived the ultimate essence are aware of the distinction between the properties of nature and action, as also of the fact that these properties are preoccupied with themselves and are disinterested in their action. The word essence here means the Supreme Spirit rather than the five or twenty-five elements or primary substances that are countable. In Krishna's words, God is the only element. Besides Him, there is no other reality. Going across the properties of nature, 
the sages who dwell in God, the only reality, are enabled to perceive divisions of action according to the properties of nature. If the predominant quality or property is ignorance, or tamas, it shows itself in the forms of lethargy, sleep, and wantonness, in brief, in a general disinclination to action. If the basic property is passion, or rajas, the resulting action is characterized by an unwillingness to retreat from worship and a sense of authority. If the dominating property is virtue or quality of goodness, sattva, the actions prompted by it bear such traits as concentration of mind, meditativeness, a positive attitude towards experience, continuous thought, and simplicity. The properties of nature are mutable, so the perceptive sage alone is able to see that the excellence or otherwise of action is determined by the constituent properties. These properties effect their work through their instruments, the senses and their objects. But they who have not yet gone beyond these properties and are still midway are addicted to whatever they do. They ought not to undermine the faith of the deluded who are unaware of the truth because they are enamored of the constituents of matter and so attached to senses and their functions. Men who have an infatuation for nature get addicted to their actions when they see them gradually evolving towards the level of superior properties. Wise men who know the truth should not unsettle these deceived men who lack in both knowledge and energetic effort. Instead of disheartening them, the wise should encourage them because they can reach the ultimate state where action ceases to be only through the performance of action. After making a careful appraisal of his inborn capacity and situation, the seeker who has resolved to act by the way of knowledge must deem action as gifted to him by the properties of nature. If, on the contrary, he presumes that he himself is the doer, it will make him vain and conceited. Even after progressing on to superior properties, he should not get addicted to them. The seeker, on the other hand, who has chosen the way of selfless action, has no need to analyze the nature of action and properties of nature. He has to act only with a total self-surrender to God. In this case, it is for the God within Guru, to see which properties are making their entry and which are departing. The seeker on the way of selfless action believes everything, changes in properties as well as his gradual elevation from the lower to the higher ones, to be a blessing from God. So although he is constantly engaged in action, he neither feels the vanity of being the doer, nor becomes attached to what he is doing. Referring to this, as well as to the nature of the war at hand, Krishna says, 
मयि सर्वाणि कर्माणि सन्यस्याध्यात्मचेतसा निराशीर निर्ममो भूत्वा युद्ध्यस्व So, O Arjun, contemplate the self, surrender all your action to me, abandon all desire, pity, and grief, and be ready to fight. Arjun is told to fight, restraining his thoughts within his innermost being, surrendering in a meditative state all his deeds to the God and Krishna, and in absolute freedom from aspiration, pity, and sorrow. When a man's thought is absorbed in contemplation, when there is not the least desire of hope anywhere, when there is no feeling of self-interest behind the act, and when there is no regret over the prospect of defeat, what kind of war can a man fight? When thought is withdrawn from all sides into the innermost spirit, against whom will he fight? And where? And who is there to fight against? In fact, however, it is only when you enter into the meditative process that the true form of war emerges. It is only then that it is known that the throng of unrighteous impulses, of desire, wrath, attraction and repulsion, and of desire and hunger, all deviations from piety, which are called kuru, are the great enemies that create attachment to the world. They obstruct the seeker of truth by launching a vicious assault. To overcome them is real war. To subdue them, to contract oneself within one's mind, and to achieve the state of steady contemplation is real war. Krishna again stresses the point. Ye me matamidam nityam Anutishthanti manavah Shraddhavanto nasuyanto Muchante te Unquestioning and devoted men who always act according to this precept of mine are liberated from action. Freed from illusion and possessed of feelings of adoration and self-surrender, men who always act in conformity with Krishna's precept that one should fight are also liberated from all action. This assurance of Yogeshwar Krishna is not for a Hindu, Muslim, or Christian, but for all of humanity. His doctrine is that one should make war. The war of the Gita is that of the heart, the innermost self. This is the war between matter and spirit, knowledge and ignorance, Dharmakshetra and Kurukshetra. The more we try to check our thought by meditation, the more the unrighteous impulses emerge as enemies and launch a terrible attack. Vanquishing their demoniacal powers and restraint of thought are at the very center of this war of the divine song. The one who is rid of illusion and engages in the war with faith 
is perfectly liberated from the bondage of action and of birth and death. But what happens to him who retreats from this war? Know that skeptical men who do not act in keeping with this precept of mine because they are devoid of knowledge and discrimination are doomed to misery. Deluded men drunk with attachment and lacking in discrimination, who do not follow the teaching of Krishna, or who, in other words, do not wage war in a state of meditation in which there is complete self-surrender, as well as freedom from desire, self-interest, and grief. These men are deprived of the ultimate bliss. If this is true, why don't people invariably do so? Krishna accounts for it thus. Sadrisham cheshtate svasyaha prakriter gyanavanapi prakritim yanti bhutani nigraha kinkarishyati Since all beings are constrained to act in conformity with their natural disposition, and the wise man also strives accordingly, of what avail can violence with nature be? All beings are dominated by their governing property and act under its compulsion. The sage who is blessed with perception also makes his efforts in accordance with his nature. Ordinary men abide in their actions and the wise in their self. Everyone acts according to the inescapable demands of his nature. This is a self-evident and incontrovertible truth. It is for this reason that, according to Krishna, men do not follow his teaching, even though they know it. Unable to overcome desire, self-interest, and sorrow, or, in other words, attachment and aversion, they fail to act in the prescribed way. Krishna also points out another reason. Indriyasyendriyasyarthi Ragadveshau vyavasthitau Tayornavashamagachet Tauhyasya paripanthinau Do not be ruled by attachment and aversion, because both of them are the great enemies that obstruct you on the way to good. Attraction and repulsion lie within the senses and their pleasures. One should not be dominated by them, because they are formidable enemies on the way that leads to good and liberation from action. They ravish the seeker's worshipful attitude. When the enemy is within, why should one fight an external war? The enemy is in league with the senses and their objects, within the mind. 
So the war of the Gita is an internal war. The human heart is the field on which there are marshaled the divine and devilish impulses, the forces of knowledge and those of ignorance, the two aspects of illusion. To overcome these negative forces, to destroy the devilish by fostering divine impulses, is real war. But when the unrighteous forces are annihilated, the utility of righteous impulses also comes to an end. After the self is united with God, pious impulses also are dissolved and merge with Him. To overcome nature thus is a war that can be fought only in a state of contemplation. Destruction of feelings of attachment and aversion takes time. Many seekers, therefore, forsake meditation and suddenly take to imitating some accomplished sage. Krishna warns against this. Although inferior in merit, one's own dharm is the best, and even meeting with death in it brings good. Whereas a dharm other than one's own, though well observed, generates only fear. Krishna says that even though deficient in quality, one's own dharm is better than another man's well-observed dharm. The ability to engage in action that arises from one's own nature is one's dharm. So dying in the observance of one's own dharm is truly fortunate. After the soul assumes a new body, he will resume his journey from the same point of spiritual attainment at which he had stopped in his last physical life. The soul does not die. A change of clothing does not change the mind and its thoughts. To masquerade as men who have gone ahead of him will cause the seeker only more fear. Fear is a quality of nature, not of God. The pall of nature is thickened when there is imitation. The same path of action has been divided by the sage into four parts, the lowest, medium, good, and excellent. Krishna has named the seekers treading on these paths, respectively, Shudra, Vaishya, Kshatri, and Brahman. Action begins at the level of the lowest, but in the course of his spiritual quest, the same seeker can evolve into a Brahman. Further than this, when he is united with God, there remains neither Brahman, nor Kshatri, nor Vaishya, nor Shudra but only pure intelligence, the eternal and changeless Supreme Spirit. He then transcends all these classes. Krishna says that he has created the four classes, but, as it was pointed out earlier, the classification was on the basis of action, rather than according to birth. But what is that action which forms its basis? 
is it what is usually done in and for the world? Krishna contradicts this and speaks instead of the ordained task or action. As we have seen, this ordained action is the process called yagya, in which one's breath is offered as sacrifice to another and all the senses are restrained, all of which is in a true sense the practice of yoga and meditation. The special exercise which takes one to the adored God is meditation. Warn are a division of this act of meditation itself into four categories. A man should begin his quest at the level of his natural ability. This is the inherent dharma. If the seeker imitates those who are superior to and ahead of him, he will be only burdened with fear. He will not be destroyed completely, for in the spiritual enterprise the seed is indestructible. But he will be overwhelmed by terror and impoverished under the burden of the material world. If a student of primary level sits in graduate classes, he cannot become a graduate, although for sure he will forget even the alphabet. Why, Arjuna asks, does man then not act according to his inherent dharma? Arjun said, What, O Varshneya, Krishna, is that which drives man, forced against his will, as it were, and with reluctance, to act impiously? Why does a man, although like one who is dragged to something which he despises, act in sinful ways? Why does he not conduct himself according to the precepts laid down by Krishna? Krishna's answer to the question is provided in the following verse. The Lord said, Know that desire arising out of the emotional property of nature, rajas, and insatiable as fire is the same as wrath, and learn to recognize it as your most wicked enemy in this world. Desire and wrath that spring from the natural property of passion, or rajas, have an insatiable appetite for sensual pleasure and are the most sinful. Desire and wrath are the complements of attachment and repugnance. So Arjuna is warned that he must regard them as his most dangerous enemies. And now their deleterious effects are dwelt upon. Dhumena 
As fire is enveloped by smoke, a mirror clouded with dust, and a fetus hidden by the womb, even so, knowledge is engulfed by desire. Discrimination is obscured by the mantle of desire and wrath. If we burn damp wood, there is only smoke. There is fire, but it cannot leap into flame. A dust-covered mirror cannot give a clear image. Just so, when there exist the perversions known as desire and wrath, the mind cannot have a clear perception of God. Avritam jnanametena jnanino nityavairina kamarupena kauteya And, O son of Kunti, even wise men's discrimination is engulfed by desire, insatiable like fire, and their perpetual enemy. So far, Krishna has named two enemies, desire and wrath. But in the 39th verse, he mentions only one of them, namely desire. In truth, the feeling of anger lies within desire. When a task is successfully completed, anger subsides. But when desire is obstructed, anger reappears. So anger resides at the heart of desire. It is important to know where the enemy hides, for knowing this will facilitate a total destruction of the enemy. Krishna expresses his view on the problem. Indriyani mano buddhi asyadhishthana mucchate etair vimohayatyesha jnanamavrityatehinam. Since the senses, mind, and intellect are the seats of desire, it is through them that it deludes a being by clouding his faculty of discrimination. So we have the answer. Our worst foe dwells within our own senses, mind and intellect. It is through them that desire envelops knowledge and deludes the embodied soul. So, O the best of Bharat, Arjun, first subdue the senses and kill determinedly this desire, the heinous destroyer of both spiritual and physical knowledge. Above all, Arjun must control the senses because his enemy lies concealed within them. 
The enemy is within us, and it will be futile to look for him outside. The war that has to be waged is internal. It has to be fought within the mind and heart. So Arjun must subdue his senses and kill this sinful desire which ravages both knowledge of the unmanifest spirit and knowledge of the physical world. However, he cannot storm them directly. He has first to lay siege to the stronghold of moral perversions itself by vanquishing the senses. But to restrain the senses and mind is most difficult. The success of this endeavor always appears doubtful. Krishna dispels this pessimistic attitude by pointing out the many weapons at his disposal which a man can use to fight against the enemy. Indriyani Paranyahu Indriyebhyaha Paramanaha Manasastu Parabuddhihi Above senses there is the mind, and above mind there is the intellect, and the one which lies above all of them is the soul within, supremely powerful and yet subtle. So man is not so helpless after all. He has an armory of plentiful arms with which he can wage war with strength and confidence. He can use his mind against the senses, his intellect against the mind, and above all these there is his soul, all-powerful and yet unmanifest. That soul is the real us, and so we are strong enough to subdue not only our senses, but also our mind and intellect. Evam buddhe param buddhva samstabhyatmanam atmana jahi shatram mahabaho kamarupam durasadam Therefore, O the mighty armed, knowing the soul, subtle, and in every respect mighty and meritorious. Restrain the mind with your intellect and kill this desire, your most formidable enemy. Possessed of knowledge of the unmanifest and yet mighty soul that is beyond intellect, and after a due appraisal of his innate strength and restraining the mind with his intellect, Arjun must slay desire, his worst enemy. Arjun has to kill this enemy after a proper scrutiny of his inherent capacity. Desire is a terrible foe, for it deludes the soul through the senses. So knowing his strength and with confidence in the might of his soul, Arjun should kill this desire, his enemy. Of course, this enemy is internal, and the war to be waged against it is also internal, of the sphere of the mind and heart. Conclusion In the present chapter, Krishna has defined action as the conduct of yajna. It is certain that yajna is the ordained mode. 
Whatever else is done by men besides this is one form or another of worldly servitude. It will be affirmed in chapter 4 that conduct of yajna is the action which effects freedom from the material world. The chapter describes the origin of yajna as well as what the conduct of this discipline has to offer. It then portrays the characteristic features of yajna. The importance of conducting yajna is repeatedly stressed, for this is the ordained action. The most detailed portrayal of war is thus found in chapter 3. Verses 30 to 43 are concerned with the setup of war, its inevitability, the certain destruction of those who refuse to fight, the names of the enemies who have to be killed, weighing of one's strength, and the determination to slay the enemies. The chapter thus identifies the enemies and, at the end, also provides the required encouragement to the seeker to destroy these enemies. Thus concludes the third chapter in the Upanishad of Srimad Bhagavad Gita on the knowledge of the Supreme Spirit, the science of yoga, and the dialogue between Krishna and Arjuna, entitled Shatru Vinash Prerna, or Urging the Enemy's Destruction. Thus concludes Swami Adgadanand's exposition of the third chapter of the Srimad Bhagavad Gita in Yatart Gita. Hare Om Tat Sat. <laughs>